But this babysitter who was six years older than I, um, at the age of six, she, um, she molested me. That started the whole ball rolling for me to step into sex clubs and uh, go into prostitution, go massage parlors, go into strip clubs. When you use mood-altering um, substances or mood-altering experiences to cope with pain, then if for a season it works, and then it no longer works because it become I become um, it becomes norm, and so I need to up, upgrade it, and so that means more graphic, more disgusting, or boundaries that I said I would never cross to get the same high that I once had. So this escalated. So I began to have uh, fantasies of rape, and uh, it's hard for me to even state that now as a man has been thirty. 39 years in recovery, the way I saw myself inside, the damage inside, this is out. I could never have that woman if, because of, look at me, look at, look at, I'm too broken. So I'll, if I can't have that and I want that, I'll take that. When fantasy no longer satisfies, I start thinking about what is real? What would it be like to do that? And so one night in the, the back of a club, this woman walked by, man, something inside just snapped that said, this is your opportunity to fulfill that fantasy. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with Gene McConnell, and he is a former sex buyer, and we've got a really interesting story for you and an interesting show, so please check it out. So, we just have half a little 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 bit of a chat there uh before the show and you were kind of telling me you know just about um uh about the group that you you know work with and and uh you're a little bit about your story but do you mind if we kind of go back to like the very beginning and talk about start just basically like where you were born sure. childhood a little bit about that you know where you went to high school siblings well the the um I was born in uh, Ventura, California, and uh, spent my time there in that Southern California until I was in fifth grade. And so I grew up in a uh, a very good environment. Uh, my parents were pastors. They, they, they were, my grandparents were pastors, and I could go on. The entire family had some kind of leadership in church environment. Um, and I enjoyed I enjoyed my my fifth grade, you know, all the way to fifth grade. But California, my parents wanted us to move to Oregon and and and, and uh, kind of get a different experience in just California and, and the big city, so to speak. But in my first several years, there was a I had a I had a blast as a kid. But this babysitter was six years older than I. Um, at the age of six, she. Um, she molested me. She was our neighbor, and she um, molested me more than once. And I, I was, I was just looking for attention, affirmation. She was somebody that we I played with and hung out with. And she was six years older than I was. And man, that that experience was profound because my childhood just literally got blew up. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to communicate it. Uh, I had huge mixed emotions. Uh, 
ambivalence would be the word for that, but just the idea that one side of me really, I want it to be valued and wanted and special. And the other side of me felt dirty, soiled, damaged, uh, shame. And uh, so I didn't know how to talk about it. And that happened more than once. It happened over a series of uh, two, two, three, four years. I'm not sure. Many of the experiences were blurred together. But one thing for sure is, is that the babysitter said, uh, if I told anybody that I, that she would tell everybody it was my fault and, and that uh, I'm the one that, that uh, initiated it. And uh, the feeling of the, all the, that feeling of being dirty and soiled and damaged was huge in me. And I, I didn't know how to make sense of it. And so I, I committed to never talk about it. I committed to just move on and never, never, ever let anybody uh, see that part of me. The one thing that really convinced me to just stay silent was, is that my body responded, uh, my body responded to the touch. My body responded to the sexual at the same time, my body is responding to it. I'm also not, I'm, I'm fighting it disgusting and I felt, I was feeling uh, ugly and dirty and broken. And so I didn't know how to make sense of any of that. And because so, my body responded to it, it, it uh, reinforced the fact that I felt that I was, that part of me was too broken to be known. That part of me is too dirty, too soiled. I can't tell anybody. So I committed to keep my mouth shut. Um, never talked about it. And so I, the way I cope with it was, as I just become a performer. Uh, so I just did extra work to make sure that people liked me. That I did really good in school. I was a great athletics and sports. I'm sorry. How long did this go on? I mean, is this was a one-time thing or was this? No, she had, she did this. Uh, I would, I would say I have blurred memories, uh, of, well, a lot of different encounters. I, I don't have, I don't have the ability to pull a timeline in to every time it happened, but I, I can say for sure that it happened, you know, three or four times a year at least. And with these three, there was three years or four years that we were there. Um, so after we left, we moved, then it stopped obviously. So, but I, I would say, you know, 10, 12, maybe times. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is, is that there's a really big deal on that. I mean, the idea that you, I know that it's wrong. I knew that it was unhealthy. There's no question about that. I grew up in an environment that, you know, educated and talked about and understood that the adults or older, you don't have sexual encounters. That's for later in life and you can choose and you're growing up. I knew that. But uh, what I, uh, the hard part was, is that uh, there was also a side of me that enjoyed it enjoyed it in a sense, not because anybody would enjoy abuse, but because the attention that was being given, uh, she was saying how special I was and that she really liked me and that it really felt like she was being affectionate. So I had a real, I was confused as to what is affection here. And so I, I didn't know what, what was going on in her house. Yeah. Well, you you never knew. Obviously had some issues. Obviously. Uh, well, you know, kids don't pass that on unless they've been tasted themselves. So I'm sure that that was going on in her world. I've never, 
I don't even know where she is these days. You know, I mean, been a, so I've never talked to her. I don't know why I know her story. But the thing is, is that for sure, she was confused herself. And uh, and she was somebody I looked up to because when I'm six, you think about a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, uh, she's like adult. You know, she's 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 grown up in my mind, you know. So, right. so it, it certainly was um, confusing. So I, I, I went to, you know, went on and, and, uh, there was this season in my life where I was involved in sports and I was excelling in, in uh, little league and, uh, th- things were going incredibly well. And this older boy who my parents, his family was going through a really hard time and, uh, his parents went through the, we're going through a divorce and he started getting into dr- the, the alcohol and drugs and some other things. And he just, uh, my parents decided to help him. And so he, they brought him into our home. And the day they brought him into our home, um, he, he, he began to molest me as well. And he was, uh, he was six to seven years older than I was. And he was in my bedroom. Um, because we didn't have a house where he could have a different room. So he slept in my in my bed. And that happened for as long as he was there. And there was, you know, it was in and out for about three to four years as well. And again, confusion is because this guy was somebody that I knew that would, you know, beat up my bullies. We'd go skateboarding together. We'd ride bikes together. We did a lot of things together. He was like a, you know, a mentor. And, uh, but slash... You know, and now he's introducing sections of the relationship. And again, it, the confusion was there, the confusion of, you know, what is this? I got this neon sign on my forehead. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I didn't ask for this. I didn't engage in that on purpose. I didn't even, I, I didn't even uh, initiate it. But it seems that somehow uh, people see that and they take advantage of that. And so that happened for a long period of time. And I was very confused because outside, you know, goofing around when we were in school or we were hanging out, we were best buds and, and everything was just great. But it was when it just changed when we were in, in this bedroom. I was going to say, it's, it's funny that there was a, and I, and I'm sure I'm going to botch the, the study, but there was actually a study that showed that um women or I'm, I'm assuming it was women that had been raped were something like 50 percent more likely to be raped again in their lifetime than women that hadn't and there was another study that i remember they had people that were robbers like criminals that were robbers um look at people walking down the street and they picked out with something like 85% accuracy, which people were vulnerable to be robbed. And, and those people that they were picking out, like 85% of the time had been robbed. Like these were people that had been victims. They just, you know, predators can sense a victim. And I think that's, that's very accurate because what happens to us when we've been victimized like that is your, your sense of confidence is broken. Your sense of confidence in making that healthy choice. Well, intuition is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Huge thing. People ignore it all the time. Yeah. 
And so I, you know, I, this happened to, I, not only did this boy that, that molest me, um, for a period of time, I went to a camp for a summer, a couple of weeks there. And when I was 12 and the guy that was one of the guys that was uh, kind of heading the camp or not heading the camp, but part of the leadership side of it. Um, and he, he, he molested me. He was 19. He molested me as well the night, the last night of camp. And so it's like, you know, I, all I did was I carried his baseball bat. I carried his gear. I, I did everything around, you know, served and it was kind and, I was looking for a mentor. I was looking for, you know, healthy relationship, not for anything else that I never in any way, uh, asked for that. But the last night at camp, he snuck into my bed, uh, in the middle of what, there was 12 other people in that, in that cabin. Um, but it was like two in the morning and whatever. And so it, how do I respond to that? There's somebody I respect There's somebody who I looked up to. And all of a sudden now here we are again. And so a lot of confusion by the age of 12, I've had this huge exposure to, um, sex as being violating, uh, sex that's using sex that is not in a, not in any way, shape, loving and caring and mutual. And so I had a lot of damage done very early in my life uh, of what does even healthy look like sexually, um, and a lot of pain. Uh, and absolutely one of the most important things in this, uh, was that I never, ever, ever told anyone, no, one. I committed that, man, I can't, I can't talk about this. There's just no, how will they perceive me? I mean, I, I, if I don't like what I'm seeing in me, if I don't like when I revisit those memories and they did come from here or there, uh, if I don't like that, how the heck will anybody else? So you know, heck no, I'm not, I'm not, not letting anybody. So I, I just recommitted that double down. I'm, I'm just going to work hard to outdo this crap. Um, and, uh, I'll make better choices, quote unquote. Um, but when I was at my, 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 my uncle's house, actually, I think he's more a cousin, but anyhow, I, I was at his house and he was, uh, somebody who I looked up to who he was, uh, he's probably in his forties and, uh, had a family and all that. Well, I was over at his house playing army and, uh, been over at his house many, many times, but in the, sh- the shed in the backyard was usually locked up. And, uh, but this time I wasn't. And so I was sneaking and hiding, you know, as we were trying to, to, you know, shoot each other with BB guns. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so I was in the shed and when I, got in, came into the shed, there was two to 300 pornography magazines. And now, uh, so I'd never seen one before, uh, you know, back now I'm, I was born in 55. So back in those days that pornography was unavailable in any way, shape or form, except for behind the counter. Um, so you, you would have to go to a, a grocery store and you'd have to go to a special spot or a special section for you to even grab porn. Or you find somebody who has it at home, what we call the spillover effect, and uh, that you would, I would, people would see it there, or somebody had thrown it in the trash. So, for my ex- first exposure to pornography was at the, uh, in this man's house where uh, I was in the shed and I looked at, I don't know, for hours. You know, I, I quit, I brought the 
the boy in that was that was playing army with and we sat and looked at it and talked about it and laughed about it and that happened over and over and over again i mean so i'd go over to his house and i'd i'd sneak more and and so i became immediately uh connected to the pornography and it was the same feeling this is really key to me um it was the same feeling as a sexual abuse it, the the though it was exciting it was arousing it was those beautiful bodies but at the same time there were the way they treated women the way they handled women the the language that was put around them you know bitches whores sluts and all those other languages like things i won't i don't even use these days ever and so there was demeaning words brought which i was taught differently to, to talk about women so i there was shame and pleasure connected and that was the same experience that i had when I was sexually abused. And there are a lot of studies out there right now stating that that early exposure to pornography has the same impact as sexual abuse because it wounds the ability to see sex in a healthy light. It wounds the ability to understand what it means to treat a woman, how to treat a man, how to, what does sexuality leave in, what is healthy sexuality. And so for a child to be exposed at an early age, when especially at 12 years old, when my mind is being shaped and molded and I'm my learning, you know, I'm at a very key point in life where I'm shaping how I believe about life and think about women, think about men, think about sex. Uh, pornography had a problem. Um, and, you know, the, the material, if it was just women being unclothed, it would have been bad enough. But, but it actually, you know, had women being, you know, bound and gagged, and, uh, women being beaten, and I could go on and on and on. There were there's a lot of demeaning, uh, very toxic, very destructive ideas. Had they those ideas been played out in real life, we'd be arrested for it. Right. You would not be able to do that to a person and be able to stay out of jail. And yet they were putting that in a glamorized, sexualized, arousing framework um that made it look like especially as a kid because they call it adult entertainment they call it adult you know this is how adult men treat adult women this is what sex really is so it was a very very damaging education for sure on top of already what i was experienced in life where someone had the right to cross my sexual boundaries for their own pleasure um and so i at 12 i mean i just i started consuming porn as much as i could get a hold of it and i would go into stores and i'd steal it i would get, go to friends houses and if their parents had it or they had it somewhere i'd find it uh we would watch it uh not there was no such thing as video in those days it was back in the day in the wagon days um <laughs> I'm 67 right now. So back in the day when, you know, Heffner actually started Playboy, I was still, I was a young boy. And uh, so I, I I grew up in a sexual quote unquote revolution. And so porn was uh, a big part of my growing up. And it's secret though, because I was never allowed to consume that. My parents would have uh, definitely hung me for doing something like that. It was totally anti everything I grew up learning. So I, I was a consumer. 
Yeah, and then at sixteen, I made a I made a big step to say no. I'm I'm I can see how this is affecting me. I can see that it, this how this is affecting the relationships and my dating relationships, and that I, you know, uh, that this stuff doesn't work when you apply it to real life. You apply it to real life, and people get re get uh, mad or walk away or or call me names, and so I, I realized that. that Porn needed to stop. So at 16, I stopped and uh, went for till I was about 21. I got married, um, had started having kids, and that first child, my wife was uh, pregnant. And uh, well, we got married when I was 21, and our she got pregnant right after that. And so right, right at becoming 22. She's, we have our first son. Well, why in the six months pregnancy, six months of that pregnancy, she woke up in the middle of the night screaming and crying. I uh, just uh, sweat all over her. She was in a fetal ball position and she just, I couldn't touch her. I couldn't hold her. I could kiss her. I couldn't do it. She just completely pushed me away. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? And inside I thought, oh my gosh, somehow she knows and sees that broken part of me that I don't like, that I hate. And so I was like, oh, Lord, this is over. And this is just, this, this is no, this is, this is done. I mean, I'd walk up to her, she's washing dishes and come up behind her and give her a hug and, and she'd push me away. I'd literally give her a kiss and she'd wipe it off. And I, and I thought, man, there's just, this is over. It's done. And reality was, was that that baby triggered her own sexual abuse that she had as a child. And she didn't even, our first board started moving in, the, in her tummy. And so this started a whole lot of uh, problems because she was pushing away and she wasn't uh, being affectionate and she wasn't being loving. At the same time, I'm going, well, if she doesn't love me, then I'm going to get get this somewhere else. And so... That started the whole ball rolling for me to step into sex clubs and uh, going to prostitution, going to massage parlors, and going to strip clubs. Uh, and go, I could buy now. So I could go to the pornography, the adult bookstores, and uh, I could buy pornography. And so I still kept it all in secret. So no one had a clue that I was consuming, no one had a clue that I was doing this on the side. And uh, first, it started out really kind of small, uh, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks. And then and as the pressure, the marriage got worse, uh, uh, I used the porn and the clubs as a way to cope. Can I ask a question? I mean, did you ever talk to her about what the issue with was with her waking up and and having these um you know these nightmares and yeah i mean i tried to approach it and she she wouldn't she didn't she didn't talk she just she just was freaked out over the memories now it's the only reason why i knew about the memories being triggered was as later in therapy we were trying to to figure out you know how we can build our marriage and you know, I brought to the table that she became non-sexual, absolutely uh, had an aversion to sex. 
and in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so we went to counseling for it. And in counseling, it came out in the open. Um, but I never, in counseling, I, I didn't tell anybody any of this stuff. I just kept my mouth shut and just put it all on her. You know, I've said that her, my problem with her is her. <laughs> that, it, you know, right. it really, the truth is, is that when I, we started looking at it, my view, because what porn, porn, one of the things about what porn did is, is, is an education. And when you learn something and you believe something is true, which is that that women are was primary need or responsibility was to meet my needs sexually and to and that she would be depriving me of love and care if we were not having sex and that sex is the number one thing uh, that a wife's role was and if she's not taking care of my needs then there I have a right to go outside of that and that is you know, and how even in the terms of the activities, what I was expecting from her to do, things that I would see in porn and she wasn't doing, which meant that I'm being deprived, um, thinking that, well, this is what adults do and you're not doing them. Therefore, and you're not wanting to do them. You're not even wanting to learn how to do them. You're totally uh, adverse to doing this. And so I just decided, heck with you. I'm just going to do this myself and keep my mouth shut, not say anything. And I survived doing that with behind closed doors, um, not knowing that that I, you know, I was getting worse and that this was growing and this was becoming a huge problem for me. And so every time we started having fights, it wasn't I didn't even try to work through it anymore. I just stepped out the door and and went and did it. And so I had a very successful business and had tons of money and lots of uh, ability to use money wherever I wanted. And so I, at the height of this, I was probably spending, you know, two, three, four, five hundred dollars $500 a week, you know, uh, going. And so the idea in mind is that you can't, what I didn't realize then was that this is escalates this, this, an addiction when you use mood-altering um, substances or mood-altering experiences to cope with pain, then if for a season it works, and then it no longer works because it become I become um, it becomes norm, and so I need to up, upgrade it, and so that means more graphic, more disgusting, or boundaries that I said I would never cross to get the same high that I once had, and. So this progressed and continued to grow, and the the relationship was a mess. And the more I got involved the, with this, the worse it got. So I was very, uh, I was I was very. I don't know. The word would be the, the disgusted with myself. But at the same time, thinking that if uh, I need to leave this relationship, and then if my my wife would just do these things. Our marriage would be fine, not realizing that the mess I was in is really because of the mess. I mean, I, she, she could have had, if I would have responded to her in a way that was loving and caring and understanding, then I could have given her space to heal and, and entered this with a full presence. But what I was doing was I was numbing out, so I wasn't even aware of, of what she was feeling internally. I didn't even. Here, 
because she wasn't meeting my needs. So I wasn't present at all. Uh, even though I was physically there, I wasn't present. And so it was my mess, really. Uh, and a good loving man would have been to walk alongside his woman and, and give her the space to heal, to, to figure this out, rather than saying, if you don't perform, I'm out of here. And uh, especially knowing that, you know, as she began to open up in counseling, uh, the, the trauma that she went through as a kid was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I won't tell her story. That's her story to tell. But it was horrendous. And what she needed was a safe man to, to actually show something different than what I was showing. I, I just basically was her father on steroids. So it was terrible. So I, so the idea that I, somehow if she changed, that, that everything would have been fine would have been crazy. No, I needed to change. Yeah, she needed to heal. There's no doubt. She had the work to do, but I, it was really in my court to make some changes as well. So this escalated. And uh, so I began to have uh, fantasies of rape. And uh, it's hard for me to even state that now as a man who's been 30, 39 years in recovery. Uh, it, it bothered the heck out of me that I, uh, I struggled with that and that I wanted that. And as somehow, as some kind of healthy, normal sexual high. When I, when I say that now, it sounds crazy, absolutely crazy that I would see rape as a normal sexual high. But it, when I think about my experience, that all of my sexual experiences growing up were rape. And, you know, and so I, I, not to make any excuses because there is no excuse to, but the reality of me, you know, spending time fantasizing uh, a significant amount of time uh, with dreaming and thinking about raping someone as a way to get that sexual ultimate high. Um, and, uh, and with that was the, the fear um, that if I, the way I saw myself inside, the damage inside, this is I'll, I could never have that woman if, because of, look at me, look at, look, at, I'm too broken. So I'll, if I can't have that, and I want that, I'll take that. Were you, and was there, were there any issues with alcoholism or sorry, with alcohol or drugs or nothing like that? No, I was never, I never a drinker. Uh, I, 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 workaholism would probably be another aspect of it. Um, cause I, I poured myself into being successful, uh, at the cost of relationships. Um, so I'll work alcoholism, but not not anything else. No, no alcohol, no, no, not smoking, not drugs, none of that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was mostly because there because when you view porn and or in in a, in a, in a or in, have a sexual encounter, there's a mood altering that takes place, and that mood altering when you are depressed or you're lonely or you're feeling unloved or you're feeling. Um, bored uh, or angry um, just take this and you are immediately changed into euphoria and so the drug is it, it's like a drug it, and you take that drug with you because if I'm viewing porn it's a mood altering to see those images they, they, they it immediately brings you to a different level emotionally when you're looking at it and 
and even if those those images are not um, things that you would agree with, they, they are mood altering in a sense of shock, um, being disgusted even. So that there is mood altering and viewing, and, right? And, and then also kind of desensitizing. Yeah, desensitizing. like you said, it becomes a, a it, it's an evolution. It, it's it, it's a progression, right? Right, and then we're not even thinking about what the message is that it's communicating. You know, like what are they doing to the woman, or what are they suggesting about that woman, or um, so we're not even thinking about the, below that. But the reality is, those messages get planted with the emotional high, and so I, it was definitely a, an addiction, and it progressed. It didn't stop. It started out low key, you know, you know, just uh, partial nudity and back in the day and, and I just continued to escalate over time. And when you've seen everything there is to see and then you would start, well, I started looking at, uh, you know, bondage and, uh, you know, things like that. And you just escalate and escalate and you keep crossing lines and crossing lines. And, uh, for me, that was, that was a huge line. And so when, fantasy no longer satisfies and then you start thinking about what i start thinking about what is real what would it be like to do that and so one night in the the back of a club well it was a racquetball club not a sex club as i was getting out of the car this woman walked by and i walked into her own car and man something inside just snapped it said this is your opportunity to fulfill that fantasy. There was nobody else in the parking lot. It was dark. And uh, so I got out of my car and I followed her to her car. And I asked her a couple questions and broke the ice. And then as she put her racket in the car, she had her door open. She put her racket in the car. I forced my way into the car. And I had my hands around her throat with full intent to rape. And, uh, she, asked, she, she said to me, well, what are you going to do? And she just, she was, uh, she was pure fear. And when I saw, and this, this is, this was life-saving for me and for her is I saw pure fear in her eyes. It was like, you know, I am, I am the person who's her worst nightmare. I'm creating this fear. It sounds like somebody slapped me across the face and said, hello, wake up. You're about to destroy another human being's life. What are you doing? And this isn't fantasy anymore. This isn't some kind of thing you're doing off in the corner somewhere. You know, this isn't just masturbating to an image anymore or to a fantasy. This is a real human being. And the reality, and I know this is going to sound really crazy and probably most people will have a hard time. I don't know. But the reality, this is a person. This isn't a piece of meat. This isn't a commodity. She isn't a butt. She isn't a breast. She isn't something to use. She's a human being. And it came loud and clear through her eyes. And uh, it's just like, it's like it woke me up. And I just simply said, you know what? I made a serious mistake, and I'm really sorry. Uh, and I let her go, got out of my car, out of her car, excuse me. And I walked to my own car. Um, and as I walked to my own car, she got, she drove out and she got my license plates and she turned me in. 
And that was almost 40 years ago. And uh, that was the thing that woke me up, though. I mean, it, it, man, there's no doubt that I caused a great deal of damage. And there's no, there's no, you know, no cute thing to say about that. It, it was, I, did, I, I know I scared the hell out of her. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that it caused a great deal of harm and fear in her world. And even though all, all I had done at this point was force my way into the car, that's the only damage done. And our thing that I did, but I know that it was, it was definitely yeah, traumatized. So when, I mean, she got, you know, she gave the information to the police, gave a report, told them what happened. What did they do? They kind of came to your house. They just to question you or no, were they, they ready to arrest you? They arrested me. And okay. uh, I mean, the thing was that I admitted to it. I didn't, I, I actually, when I did it, I drove home and I set my wife down and I said, this is what's just happened. So I told her, oh, wow, she was blown away because she had no idea of any of this. I mean, literally, uh, she did, she knew that something was wrong because I wasn't come. We weren't talking or interacting. We were just kind of existing. Um, so it was really difficult to, uh, to tell her, but I, I knew I needed to tell her because it wasn't no more than 45 minutes later, the police showed up at the door and they arrested me. And, you know, I admitted it. And then I got a, you know, got an attorney and then we went through all this. And I'd never had a, a record or never, had, never been arrested for anything. A few driving tickets, but that nothing, nothing of seriousness. And so we went through court and I, I had a five year prison thing they were that i was facing and they ended up reducing that down to 90 days in jail with parole so but then they ended up dropping it down even further and so because it was first offense and they had me go through a whole series of workshops and things so although i think that i got off a little easy i would say uh but I was committed to never return. Uh, in jail, they, you know, the guys are all going, yeah, he says, yeah, you'll be back. You know, people always do. And I said, no, no, I won't. I've, this is my wake-up call. And then, you know, they, did, they just teased me and they harassed me and all that. But I was, that, was, that was it. That was the, what were you charged with? It ended up being a misdemeanor for assault. Uh, uh, not assault, uh, or aggravated. What was it? No, I can't even remember. It was reduced. It was a felony and it was reduced to a misdemeanor. Um, yeah, because all I, that what I had done, I had done nothing sexual and all, and, and my hands were out of throat and I pushed my way into the car. So they, that's all they had to work with. Um, and you know, I, I know what it was bad enough, and I and I know I deserve whatever they gave, and uh, but I you know went through it, and uh, I I decided that it was interesting because once I went through it, there was a ton of people that were saying, "Man, I man I I struggle with a lot of the stuff that you not to, not to the level that you did. I don't want rating, but man, I I struggle with porn or." 
I've been going to the clubs or I've been doing prostitution on the side or there's just a ton of people that when it came out in the open, what are you doing to get help? I need help. And so over the period of several years of me, you know, committed to change and get help and determined to figure out what it takes to heal. Cause I don't want to ever go back to this. And, uh, I was very disappointed in how counseling was available, what kind of counseling was available. It, the, the only real help out there at the time was, is you go into a group and you say, hi, I'm a sex offender and this is who I am for the rest of my life. And you will never be anything other than that. And everything is looked through as uh, light through that lens. And there's, and I just didn't like that because what they did was they pretty much guaranteed that that's what I will be for the rest of my life. It's it's stupidity. Yeah, I made some serious mistakes. Yes, I I hurt other people. There's no question. But I can change, and that their that their life is not just that, and that there are many things about me and about you know that I I, I care. I love people. I I serve well. I. I'm a good professional. Uh, I'm a good dad. I'm a good. Now I'm a good husband. Uh, Did you stay old. married? No, she left. She she decided. I mean, we we stayed together for a season, but she just couldn't hang with what came out in the open. Um, and I understand it, it brought up her worst memories, her worst nightmares, and uh, no matter what I did, actually, I was in the the best shape period I could have been in my journey and, and, uh, but she just couldn't, she couldn't hang. And I, I would, you know, I look back on it and I, I totally understand. I get it. I have no ill feelings towards her and her decisions and that, um, I get it. And right. as, as, as getting into counseling and you actually start looking at the severity of what you did, um, and uh, how it impacted others, it was, it, it, that's sobering. And, uh, and I think this is where most people feel in the area of recovery is, is that we tend to look at, we tend to look at what's happened to us and we stay stuck there. Like, woe is me. I was a victim. You know, I had sexual abuse in my story. Why don't you understand that? And we could certainly stay there and there, and quite frankly, need to work there. Um, there's no doubt that I was wounded and that I need healing and I need to work through that and I need to, to change some of the thinking. And But it, most of the what I find in the offender side of things is they're still stuck in their victim side, not realizing that they're reacting out of that pain and hurting others. And they're blaming that they're not looking at or taking ownership to what they're doing. They're, they're stuck in what happened to them and not looking at what they've done. And so it's not, and you can't focus just on what they've done either. You just say that that person's an offender. Well, look at the story behind it. Look at the reality that that's a human being who, who has, there isn't a story, there isn't a story, there isn't a story that I haven't worked with that. I mean, and what I, what I mean is that what, that I haven't heard in who's been an offender who has not been offended. And there, it's just oh, there's, there's, they go together, and hurt people, hurt people. Uh, it's not an excuse; it's a reality. And so, if I'm going to really help someone change their life, they got to look at where 
all this stuff started. And it doesn't give them an excuse. Well, I was hurt, so I hurt somebody. No, that's no, that's not what we're saying. Because if we did that, then we'd give everybody a free ride. It's no, we realize that no, if we've been hurt, we better get some help. Don't hold on to it. Don't swallow it. Don't keep it under. You know, if you're struggling, don't you don't keep it under because as long as you keep it secret, it grows. It it does keeping things in dark causes it to grow. So coming out in the open in a safe place, if I would have had a place where I could have talked about this, I don't know if I was I carrying so much shame, I don't know if I could have talked. The way this came out in the open was a forced deal. And uh but thank God I look back at it now. I'm glad it did. I'm not glad it happened to her. So it, there was no there's no glamour of that. But the reality that it came out for me was my first step for help. And uh, if I didn't have it out in the open, I don't know if I could have talked about it. I don't know if I could have ever said, hey, you know, I struggle with, you know, rape fantasy. Or, hey, I, I, I'm going to prostitutes. You're married and you have kids. Really? Are you serious? You, you weirdo. Um, there, there's such a perception of sexual dis when there's sexual dysfunction involved that people are perverts or weirdos or free labels that make it impossible for a person who struggles to ever talk. And, uh, the first step is to talk. You can't, you can't heal what you hide. Right. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely believe that, you know, um, so how, so after you got, you got out of the jail stint, your wife, you know, she hung out for a little bit, but it just didn't work out. And what did you do? Did you, I mean, was this something that immediately happened or did you, con I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, did you continue, you know, this, I mean, was that the wake up call and everything you know, all better at that point, or did was there a was it a progression? You know, the I made a decision uh, when I was arrested that I was going to change. I had no idea what that meant, though. Uh, I thought I was just going to be okay. I'm turning around right here. This is it done. Uh, so in jail, you know, while I was there, I made a commitment to to shift and change. And when I walk out, I'm going to be a different person. Right. I like that said, there's really nowhere to go. No, nowhere to go. But, but I think when I got out of jail and I came back to the reality of a mess relationship that didn't go away, in fact, it just got 20 times worse. Um, so the pain of that relationship and learning that that's how I learned to cope was to go to sex pornography. So I had, I struggled for a while, um, not anywhere close to the same level that I did before. Um, the rape fantasy crap is gone and all that kind of stuff. But the reality was, is that I still went to clubs, still went to massage parlors as a way to, to compensate for what I wasn't getting in the real world. Um, and it took a while for me to work out what, what, when I was doing and what is dysfunctional and what is not. Cause it, it was really confusing. I mean, I didn't really know. I knew that what I did wasn't right. And I knew that it needed to change because it clearly hurt somebody else, but I had no idea. So it took me, I'd say several years of, of being in recovery, doing groups, seeing a counselor, reading books, uh, going to retreats, doing intensives, um, just a whole lot of different things 
to help me begin to understand how to change. The thing was that most recovery stuff uh, back in the day, especially, was behavioral. So it's like you just don't do that anymore. And here's what you do to change that. And so it was all behavioral. So we just change everything on the outside. But the truth is, is everything that you see behavior wise is a fruit, is a symptom of something deeper. And if I'm really going to help someone change, I got to look at how did that, how did that get started? Where did that begin? So we look at beginning places. We look at where things start. And you, if you deal with roots, then the fruit is no longer existent. It, but if you play games with the fruit, in other words, games meaning I stop this, don't go there, don't run with these people, don't buy that, don't use this, then that's that's like cutting off the branch. And when you cut off a branch, all you've done is prune it. And pruning is never meant to get rid of anything. Pruning is a, a strategy to have more fruit. So when you cut off a branch, the, the very life that brought that branch about still exists. So the, the, the root system then the life that was bringing that branch about goes back into the roots, builds a bigger root system, and then comes back with more life, comes back with more fruit. So what it means is, is that no matter how many times I said no, that I'll never do this again, it always come, it always came back and it came back stronger. Like it kind of came back even worse. So the idea that I can change the behavior without changing what's going on on the inside is not happening. And so any kind of treatment program that focuses in on just the fruit, in other words, an offender program, you're just, you're just going after the behavior. You're not dealing with what's really going on. Yeah. And you're looking at behavior mod. So behavior modification only lasts for a, a temporary basis. That's why we see people reoffend and reoffend and reoffend. And people have a really difficult time not saying, there's a statement that what's offender, always an offender. So don't give the uh, somebody who's offended uh, any any breaks. I mean, you just this just one time away from one step away from offending. And I would agree with that if all you do is do behavioral mod. But if you actually deal with what is really going on, which we do, when the works that I do, uh, we see people completely change and shift and move if they want to, because some people, and this is just reality. Some people will jump through the hoops, but inside, they don't want to change. They they want to stay with. They want everybody to leave them alone. They want to still do what they want to do, and there's no getting them to change. And so, yeah, they'll jump through the right hoops to get to get the law off their back, and then they reoffend, and they reoffend, and they reoffend. And those people should never see the light of day work wise. They should be in prison. So they reoffend and they reoffend. They need to be there. They and uh, they show and demonstrate that they can't live in society um, and not hurt people. But especially in child molestation and child a child offender, we've seen and I, we've had those as well. Is that they actually see themselves as loving that child, that they are actually nurturing that child. That's a true a true um, molester pedophile is someone who believes that they are loving that child. And what we find is the roots to that is, is that whatever age they were sexually abused or damaged, doesn't have to be sexual abuse, but whatever age that they were wounded, they're emotionally arrested and they stop growing emotionally in that area. 
So they still see themselves and parts of themselves as that age. So if they were, if they were molested or they were hurt, they were at eight years old, then they're going to like kids around eight, nine, 10, seven, six. So they find kids attractive based on the age that they stopped growing. And so if they don't address that and they don't face that and they actually don't grow up and take adult things and heal, then they will always want children at that age because that's how they, and so they don't see any advances that they make towards children. Right. I, I was going to say, I was, um, I don't know if you know this, I was incarcerated, um, but I was at a, at the, uh, federal uh, prison uh, complex in uh, in Coleman, Florida. And uh, at the, you know, I was at the medium security prison, but I was also at the low for a time. And at the low, there's a, like, nearly, nearly half the compound has some kind of a, some kind of a, a sex crime. And, you know, although I'd say, 90% of them are lying about it. Right. <laughs> they'll, they'll tell you they're, they're there for something else, but sure. you know, it, it just, it just becomes, you, you just, it's so obvious. And, and there's such a large group of them that they don't really have to hide it. But I, I definitely, after speaking with, you know, uh, you know, numerous offenders and, you know, everything you're saying is like spot on. And, and in some cases they would, like you said, they would actually, want to mount an argument that they actually, you know, love this child or giving them affection and that right. sort of thing. And, and like you said, all of them had been abused as children. Yep. Like, I, I don't think I ever spoke with anybody that hadn't been abused, even if they didn't consider it abuse, yep. like they were 11 or 12 and there was a cousin or a, a brother or sister, um, that was touching them inappropriately, uh, even if they were like, you know, oh, but you know, that happens to everybody. And I was like, well, no, no, it doesn't, you know? And obviously, even if it happens to a lot of people, it had a, had a dramatic effect on them because they suddenly were attracted to 11 or 12 year old, you know, girls or boys or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I used to always say, you know, in a real, in a very real way, you know, you, you have to, you know, in, you have to feel bad for them because they were victims before they became predators. And I used to say, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, once, you know, once they became predators, like you, as sad as it is, what put them in that situation, you just can't let monster monster roam the countryside. I mean, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just such a, uh, such a, a shitty situation. It is. And I think you don't do this with the idea in mind, well, we just got to let them, you know, they were molested as a child or they, they were harmed as a child. So therefore we have to have some kind of, uh, you know, mercy on the consequences. Mercy on the consequences would actually allow them, like a child, if you, if a child doesn't. Yeah, it would just you know, keep going. If a child disobeys and does something wrong, you don't let the child go without consequences. Consequences right. are important. So well, then they're creating monsters. Exactly. So consequences are vital to someone's health. And if the consequence is that they spend the rest of their life in jail based on the con what they did, then they spend the rest of their life in jail. But can the person change? Absolutely. It does. 
the consequences, you can't pull consequences in the name of helping someone. You don't help people by enabling them to, to, for the messes they've created. And so I would say that, you know, I've had several individuals who had had a prior history of molestation, of being molested, but also molesting. And they, they went and spent time in jail. They, they've done their time. And in there, they did, then they only did their time, but they did their work. And then they come out and they do the work anyhow, even though it's not required. They went beyond the requirements. Why? Because they want to heal. They want to change. They want to be different. That person is going to come and enter society differently. And so the idea that someone who jumps through the hoops as long as they have to and then goes, goes and lives a different life completely once they get out and that different life is back in the same way that they got it and they're 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 just a walking time bomb. I was going to say, you know what's funny is that although sex offenders, you know, have a a high recidivism rate, they have a a it's it but for the actual crime, it's much lower. So, the actual recidivism rate for reoffending on a a, a sexual crime is much lower then let's say a drug dealer gets out, he's going to sell drugs again. You know, well, not going to, but whatever the recidivism rate, it's almost 90, like 5% that he's going to sell drugs. They very seldomly, you know, reoffend for a sex offense. N- not that they don't, but they very seldom. Most of the time when these guys reoffend, it's because of another crime. Like what's happened, I think, is that you've taken them and put them into a position where now they can't make a living, they can't right. live anywhere. They get right. desperate, so they they don't register, um, or they steal. They have to steal to survive, or they they break into someone's house, or you know they start doing other things to survive, and then they they end up back in prison. Well, yeah, you did you did reoffend, but it it wasn't for looking at child you know right. pornography or whatever it may be. So you know that wasn't what typically typically. I'm not saying I, mean, I think it's it's low. It's like three or 4% reoffend for the actual original offense. You know, typically it's something else. But the thing is, it's interesting, um, is that when we label someone, in other words, offenders, let's just go with that. Once an offender, always offender. And then you have a court system that when they get out, that they literally will never get past that label, that they will literally have to live that label out. Now, I get I do. I get it. I understand the idea that the society needs to be safe, and there's not. I I don't have any qualms with that. But when we say that that is who they are for the rest of their life, and that they never have a chance to ever change, then we set them up big time for failure. Right. Do. And so we forget. And this is really, really big. This is that when we label people, we we they are no longer human. They're this label. So we strip humanity away from an individual with a label. And it's, the, it's just a horrible situation all the way around. Like the problem is I just don't like, there's just no good answer. Right. Yeah. There's just no good solution. It's, you know, you've got guys on one side of the, of the fence and just, you know, execute them. You know, you've got yeah. guys on the other side of the fence, you know, who are maybe like, Oh, they did their time. They should go. Well, you know, no, I mean, that's not really the, the, the answer is, probably somewhere in between and it is just there's just no perfect solution and, and the problem is that every every sentence doesn't fit 
everybody. It has to be tailor-made. Yeah, it's totally different. Totally. It's a tough situation. It is. That's where, see, the thing is, though, if we, you know, the where I, where I, what makes my work different than most, there's, there's, I'm not the only one out there doing this, obviously, but, but what makes mine different is, is that we look at the roots and the one, a lot of, I'll hear a lot of people say, well, we deal with root issues as well, but actually knowing what the root is and understanding what the root is, is really key. So the number one source of any of this is shame. And if we don't look at shame and we don't understand what shame is, then, and we don't address it and we don't give them the tools to address it, then shame will ultimately win back and they'll be back in behaviors to cover that shame. And so shame is at the center of all addiction, at the center of all dysfunction, truthfully. And so what shame is, is it's a belief that I'm flawed at the core, that there's something really wrong with me and I've got to cover it. I can't let me be seen. Why is that so important? Because the number one need in life is to be known and to be loved. So it's the word intimacy. So intimacy is not sex. Intimacy is uh, relational, that you see me for who I am and you know me and you love me. That's the number one need across the board, whether that's male or female, it doesn't matter. And what we have done is, especially porn culture has said that Women's need is intimacy and men's need is sex. And so the idea that if we go into a relationship and we get married or we're a committed relationship and we decide we're going to walk this out with someone is that the man has a right because he's saying that he's being exclusive. In other words, not looking anywhere else. He's going to pour himself into that one relationship. And if she's not giving him sex, then he has a right because it's a need. It's not like it's, you know, they're, they're perceiving it as just like you drinking water, getting air, eating food, getting rest. They're putting it in that same framework. So if you don't get sex, you have a right to go outside and look for it somewhere else. The idea that she owes you sex, that whole thinking is, is really toxic and destructive because now we're, we're not seeing women as women. We're seeing women as our sex, like it's no different than having masturbation, only I found somebody to give it to. So that masturbating through a woman's body rather than seeing her as an individual, as a person. So intimacy is the need and that both men and women carry it. But when I just need to be known and to be loved, that is like I like breathing air. I need that. And I have shame, which says to be known is the, is the death of you. So the fear, so shame then cuts off what I need. So if I don't get my real needs met, which is intimacy, which is to be known, to have close connection with others, then I reach out to then use things to meet that need. And for for porn and sex and all that, I'm using people to get that need met. And so I reduce something to an object. I use something that won't reject me, that won't hurt me that won't walk away, that I can use to get that quote-unquote need met. So some people choose drugs, some people do alcohol, some people do food, some, you know, gambling, we could go on and on and on. But they use something. It's not connect with something, they use something. And so when we objectify women, which is what porn does, is, and we see women through the lens of their body, 
rather than as a human being, as their soul, how they think, what they feel. When we objectify, then we're using women, not connecting. And there, and so shame plays a significant role in causing all of this to happen. Because if I have a connected life, in other words, people know me, and they actually see my mistakes, and they see my flaws, and they walk alongside me, and they support me as I get help, and, and they're to help support me in any way they can. That they, they, they love me and accept me and know me. Man, that brings my heart alive. That brings there's there's connection. There's there's life there. There's something to celebrate. Wow! And having that celebration of connection is what changes life. And so, if I'm going to help people heal and change, it won't be just to stop the behavior. It will be here's how we really get what we want. Here's yeah, what we, obviously that shame is what stops them from getting to that point. Yep. You know, yep. like, like they're not going to reach, people don't want to reach out because they're embarrassed and they, yep. you know, it's, um, yeah, I, it's, you know, <laughs> this, 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 this is just a shitty situation Yeah, it is. <laughs> all the way around. Like, you know, who want, and it, it just like, like with, in your case, you know, had you reached out earlier, had you not been trying to hide this and right. felt like, hey, there's a place I can go. There's somebody I can talk to. I don't right. have to be embarrassed about this. Right. I need to deal with this. Then you wouldn't have gotten to that point. Exactly. It would have, it would have arrested it. It would have stopped it. It, it would have, it would have broken that, that, that path. Um, you know, like, uh, like alcoholics, a lot of times, I mean, not everybody has to hit rock bottom. Obviously some people realize they have a problem right. and they just, they want to cut it out. But I'd say a good a significant portion of addicts in general have to hit kind of a rock, a rock bottom to say, Hey, I can't live like this, you know? So, yeah, yeah no, you're right. And you know, so shame says shame is a belief. It's not just a feeling. It's a belief. And the belief is that I'm broke too broken to be loved. And where did that start? Started at six years old for me, you know, the shame I internalized what happened to me as who I was. And so I didn't want anybody to see that. Now, what I needed in that moment, it, we, we bring this, we bring this to an understanding of how it can change as well. This is that at six years old, what did I need? I, if I would have told my parents, my parents would have, you know, they would have cried with me. They would have, they would have went and confronted the offender. They would have done what they needed to do for me to get help. My parents would have not in any way, shape, or form said, oh, wow, you're too dirty to be loved. We're, we're throwing you on the side. So it's not what they would actually do, but it's what I perceive them to do. It's how I perceive myself. So I go into Heidi, but what I needed to be at that moment is that little six-year-old boy needed to be known. That little six-year-old boy needed to let let people know that he was hurting. Someone just took his innocence. And he's confused and he doesn't know how to perceive himself. And that's where the lies begin. The lies start in those experiences early in childhood, and they grow. And then when they grow, they they grow based upon how I use things. Uh, I, and I don't want people to know that I'm doing this to cope. And so I keep hiding, and I keep hiding, and I keep hiding, and I keep hiding. And really, what I need is someone to know and help and support, someone to care, care about me anyhow. And so shame sabotages our need for intimacy. And that is the number one need. And if we learn, if we could help people 
actually learn how to, to live a connected life. How do you open up? How do you set boundaries? How do you have conflict? How do you risk your heart? How do you trust? How do you be vulnerable? Because if I, when I was sexually abused, being vulnerable was like, that's crazy because I was, when I was vulnerable, people took advantage of my innocence. No, I'm never going to be vulnerable again. I'll take control. I'll always be in power. I'll always be, uh, um, and how do you do that? We can't do that in a relationship. You can only do that when you objectify someone, you make them an underling, you make them somebody you can control. So I'm in power. So what, where did this lead you? Did you, you, you work with a group or? Yeah. What it did was the, the change, the change happened and it's kind of started, it started at a very simple event and then it just kind of grew. And that event was that when I was arrested and I spent time in jail, I literally lost all my really, I lost all relationships. There was a few people that stayed, stayed there, but for the most part, uh, everybody I thought was a friend was gone. And I, quite frankly, I don't want to play the victim here and say, well, what was me? The, the reality is I lied to people. I broke trust with people. I mean, it just, uh, be a, the lifestyle I was living behind the scenes. I could, I get it. I understand that, that it was tough for people. Because the person that they knew me to be was not the person. And so uh, it was deception. It was betrayal of trust. So I get why they walked away. So I don't want to say that I'm somehow I'm some kind of victim in that. But the reality of it is, is that I, I couldn't be real and be open and for fear of how they would handle me. And then they lived out my greatest fear. Um, and so I just, I just got worse. For, for the first first part, I was I was closed off. I pulled away. I was still going to the clubs. Uh, and uh, this guy who I had known for a long time since I was a kid, he he was a a pastor of a very large church in California, and um, he used to come and do some of the the the, the retreats that I would go to as in in, uh, in the summertime. And in a long story short. He called me one day and he said, Hey, I haven't heard from you in a long time. You know, um, why don't we get together? And he lived about three hours away. And I, I, I said, no, I, I got so much going on. I don't I really have time. He just wouldn't take no for an answer. And he had no idea that I'd been arrested. He had no idea said that I got through any of this. And, uh, so finally he talked me into it. So I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down. And, uh, so I, 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 three hour drive, I'm thinking, okay, I'll talk about the weather. I'll talk about sports. I'll talk about the Dodgers. I'm not talking about anything serious. I'm just not going to have any real conversation. And uh, so I come into the, to the office and I sit down and, and I have my speech, so to speak. And so I start talking, you know, I said, I talked about the, the weather and how it's, you know, it's nice and hot, just a bunch of things. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe five, 10 minutes went by and then he then, uh, he said so how are you really doing and I said I just I normally for whatever reason I to this day I don't know what the heck happened uh, except for that I decided to just let it out and so I just literally poured I mean not just a little bit I just like vomited I mean vomited all of this stuff you know everything that I 
all the stuff I'd never told anybody. I just, I just put it all out there. I'd say I was there a couple, two to three hours. I, I don't know. I have no idea. I lost time. I lost, I just, I wept. I had snot run out of my nose. I was just, I, mean, I was a mess, literally. And I got it all out. And he gets up from behind his desk. Now he's between me and the doorway. I'm over in the corner. I got nowhere to go. And so he's walking towards me and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to throw me and throw my ass out of here. And so I stand up and I, my fists are clenched and I'm ready to deck him because one more person that does what these other people have done, I'm, I'm taking him out. I'm, I've had it. And he comes up and he just puts his wrestler's hug on me. And I mean, literally just gives me this strong hug and he buried his head in, in the side of my neck and he just began to weep. He just hovering literally. I mean, tears were flowing. And I'm thinking, what the heck? Uh, and he just said, I'm so sorry that you never had anybody ever really love you or accept you for your, I'm sorry that all those things, those things happened to you and I'm here to walk this out with you. Now, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm not 29, 30, I'm 30 years old, somewhere in there. And here's, for the first time in my life, of tasting, you know, we was we just described intimacy. Intimacy has nothing to do with sex. It has zero to do with sex. Intimacy has to do with connection. And here's this man who has heard my worst, literally my worst, and he's embracing. And uh, no sex, no garbage, just embracing. And uh, it profoundly shifted my heart, profoundly. Now, I had a lot of learning to do about what he just gave me because I thought, what the heck? He did, whatever he was given, I want I, I want more of that. I don't know what it was, what he just did. There's no magic wand here. What did he just do? Because it turned my heart around inside. What it did was it gave my heart life. It gave my heart the will to change, the will to do something. And so I jumped, I, you know, I over a journey of getting us small groups and started sharing and get, I got a counselor and I really start digging in. And, um, over a period of time, I realized now that what he gave was the first taste of what intimacy is. And, uh, so it was his, it was his interaction with me that started the ball really roll for recovery and change. And so, I mean, I, I built a life where I have not just one, but I have a ton of people who know me inside and out. They're not hidden. And uh, they will walk alongside me. They support me and they love me. I do the same with them. And so when you have a heart that's full, and I mean full, meaning not how much money I got, not how many titles I got next to my name, not how much toys I've collected over life, but when I when I actually have a heart full, full of what? Connection. I was created for relationship. I was meant for relationship. And uh, I'm not a human being. I'm not a human doing. I'm a human being. And so no doing compensates for the lack of being, which is connection. And so when I tasted that, when I got that, that that was a change for me. That was a move for me. Now, it didn't change everything, obviously. I had a lot of work to do, but it gave me the energy and that's really key here because I put, I've put tools in front of people. I've given people plenty of chances to change and all that, all you can imagine. And 
them not having the energy to pick those tools up and do it is huge because it, people still think or carry shame inside that somehow they're too broken, they'll never change, they can't get past this, you don't understand, look at the mess that I see. And so by having intimacy where we really know it, we actually give people the energy to actually change. And they put that energy towards learning and growing and healing. Um, and so I believe with all my heart, based on, you know, 30 plus years now of helping people, is that we help them learn how to connect, which means intimacy. It means how do you open up the real stuff and build relationships around you. And uh, where life happens in your interactions, you won't go back. Why would you settle for hot dogs when you could have steak and lobster? You, you won't go back. You just won't. Um, doesn't mean you won't be challenged, but why would I give up what I've got, what I've wanted all my life? Then a lot of us don't even know how to put words to that. Right? You know, we don't know what we want, but we know there's something better, that there's something out there more than what we're experiencing. Uh, and the reality of it is it's the shame that we carry keeps us from connection. So we break the shame by being open. We break the shame by allowing people to see us. And then we learn to change those belief systems that says we're shit, that we're no good, that we don't matter. And we turn those around. We begin to change it by the relationships we're in, the people that communicate, I am worth it, that I do matter, that I am important, that I am special, that I have uniqueness and it's good to be celebrated. So it changes everything. Um, so the game changer is breaking shame, giving people the tools to build a healthier relationships in their life. And it doesn't mean you have to have 30 relationships, just have one, one life giving relationship that you don't need that to, you know, be an out extrovert to, to do this, but you need at least one person who knows you with no protection, with no hiddenness, no secrets. Uh, because that's where real connection happens. When someone knows me and knows my flaws, knows my knows what I, what I my fears, my weaknesses, and they know my strengths, my gifts, my calling, if you will, and they know what I'm passionate about, and they they and they love me, man, that's that's a light to celebrate. That's it gets excited. So when two people know each other like that, then that that celebration of wow, we have connection. Sex is the result. Healthy sexuality is when you're. It's a result of, it's a fruit of that connection. Sex doesn't create connection. Sex is a fruit of connection. And so the, the why people go to sex is because sex is, I mean, there's no hiddenness. There's the, you see the body, you see fully, and there's nothing hidden. So, but it, so it, sex has the illusion of intimacy. But the truth is you can have sex with someone Total, no clothes, everything's nothing hidden, and you still walk away not knowing each other. I mean, I did that for years. I mean, doesn't matter. No, so no matter how many times you have sex with someone and you see their body, they see you. They, you don't know each other. They don't know your history. You don't know them. The, you so intimacy is not sex, but they can come together only when, well, you know, in a healthy way. That they come together when you have the connection first, that intimacy, and then sex becomes the outflow. But we, pornography just simply says, no, you just, 
you can do it this way and that way. And if you, you're struggling sexually, you just add spice to it. You just add another partner. You just get new toys or you do this, you do new positions. And reality is none of that actually brings long-term satisfaction. Actually, what brings satisfaction is you work on your connection. Your sexual relationship changes. So people who are struggling sexually in their relationship, it's not about finding out you know, more information about what positions and all that, although I'm not against any of that. It's that you really lack to this, what to celebrate. I mean, you, you, you don't have nothing to celebrate. So the lack of things to celebrate is the lack of sexual connection. And yeah, you can have orgasm. Yeah, you can have all that and still feel like you aren't really going anywhere. And why is that? Because the lack of connection. So you build connection and the sex becomes a natural outflow from that. And that's missing. It's missing in all of the culture. We keep thinking that sex is what makes us all connect. And that's putting the cart before the horse. So I say that to say, if we're going to help people heal, it won't be that we help them with the sexual part first. It will certainly be there. But the bigger piece is, Addressing the shame that, and and giving people the tools on how to live a connected life. Okay, that was a lot. A mouthful. Sorry, I didn't that's fine. <laughs> feel like you you feel like you've said that before. Feel like yeah. you, you've got it. You've got it down. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the world, bro. Um, it just does, and it's made a difference in my world. I mean, I've been out. You know, what, almost forty years. I'm not gone back. Not, not I've never been arrested again. I've never been in that world again. You know, I, I'm done, and, and I never will. Um, I'm. It's, there is so much to life. There's so much to offer. Uh, my life is different, but you know, I still have to face consequences of those choices back in the day. Um, you know, I still have my some of my my kids still are wounded from that that I'm still having to work through them. Um, I lost a marriage of 27 years with that, you know, that first marriage. And, um, it, you know, there's a lot of damage done, but now when I look though, as I've restored my relationships and I've worked through the pain of all, I have an amazing woman in my life. Uh, we know each other. We walk each other. We walk alongside, we celebrate, we're partner, true partners. And, oh yeah, we still have messes, but we know it and we work on it. And I, I couldn't. I'm on top of the world relationally. And I feel like um, life is what it should be. You know? Um, and I'm 67. <laughs> I wish I would have known this when I was younger. Um, but it's taken a lifetime to figure it out. But I, but if we do that. We bring people in. We do groups. And we, we do these retreats. Or we call it Pursuing the Hidden Heart. Or and the, For men, we do it called uh, Authentic Manhood. And we deal with what what is the masculinity aspect, and we we look at uh, what it takes to to heal the broken areas of our life. Uh, we look at sexuality, we look at pornography, and you know talk about all that stuff. Talk about being a father and a husband, and just living in the world as a man. What does it mean to be healthy? So we do we do these retreats and workshops, and uh, people come out going, "Wow, uh, this is." put me on a whole different tra- trajectory and 
they don't walk away going, I'm changed. I'll never be the same. They walk away with, wow, this profoundly helps me see where I need to go and what I need to do. And I tasted something I've never tasted before and I want to learn more. And so this is a journey. Nobody gets a magic wand. Nobody gets a quick fix. Um, But we can turn things around and make things different. And if they do the work, absolutely change possible. I'm I'm a living example that as many others that I've worked with. Um, That your behaviors, let me me just say it this way. Your mistakes that you've made, the things that you've done wrong, do not have to be the definer for how you live your life out now. Right. You can turn your life around and you can change it if you want to. I hear you. I did 13 years in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I got out like four years ago, you know. Well, good for you. Good for, I mean, I, I'm really proud of you because it takes a lot of strength to do what you just did. Really? You know, it really does. And not let people, you know, pigeonhole you in. And, you know, look what you, you know, look what you're building. Look what you're, look what's happening. In your life. I feel like they have pig- pigeonholed me though. I, I, I run a true crime channel. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All I talk about is crime. <laughs> um, I really, I did, but I did it to myself. So it's, well, I, but, I mean, who says this is where you end up, right? Yeah. This, no, I lo- I talk. I love. I love what I do. I mean, I'm, yeah. I talk to, you know, I I I felt, um, you know, very free in prison, you know, because you know I wasn't lying to anybody. I wasn't running some kind of a scam or a fraud. I wasn't concerned about you know being arrested and i didn't have to pretend to be you know to print pretend to be like an honest businessman when really i was committing fraud and you know sit around with my friends who were all normal people decent citizens and you know i didn't have to be a a a wolf in sheep's clothing you know i could be a wolf among wolves and i felt good being that open and so i've just carried that on out here and turned it into a way to make money, you know, make a living just, you know, having people tell their stories because these guys have amazing stories. And, you know, sometimes they're amazing stories of recovery and triumph and redemption, you know, and sometimes there's just, you know, horrific stories that maybe they don't have a great ending. You know, they, they're still in the middle of their journey, right. you know, but, but they have stories, they have interesting stories. And, and I have yet to meet anybody who's gone to prison it doesn't have it at an interesting story. They might not have a six hour story. It might be 45 minutes, but they've got, they've done something that was, that was unique and interesting, maybe horrific, you know, you know, maybe ingenious, but they've, they've got a story to tell. And, and I like it when they come to me and I talk to them and they can tell it honestly, because I mean, I'm not in a position to judge anybody. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a good living. You know, it's a good, it's a good way to make a living. Well, the thing is, is that, uh, you, you can take what has happened to you, um, what you, the things, the mistakes you've made and things that have happened and you can have a redemptive story, uh, a redemptive framework. In other words, the, what has been, could have been a defining moment which would have been for the rest of your life, or you've chosen to use it as a stepping stone, a, a place where you can choose to have impact on lives and make a difference. The, the stories make a difference. P- 
people's stories are so important. Uh, without the stories, then all we have is objectification. All we have is labels. Right. Uh, and by having stories, we get what's behind the eyes, what's real. And stories will always be the most important part of anything. So what you're doing is providing a real platform for people to, to take a good look at their own lives and learn or the loved ones that they have their relationship with. You put humanity to the issue. That's good. Good. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you coming on. Do you have anything, you have anything else you feel like we haven't covered or? No, I think, I think one, what I think in, in wrapping things up, um, is the idea that, you know, uh, objective, uh, objectification, is really is really a reflection of my inability to connect and so our fear a fear of women are are afraid to be a fear of being intimate um is such a such a big deal and if we're if we really want to see change happen for our all of our lives is learning to connect with people rather than objectify you rather to try to control or and that whole idea that control meaning that i don't want people to know me i i control to keep people at a distance so they don't get too close to expose my stuff and if you're living authentically if you're in other words uh, i'm living in the open with at least one person i don't have to do that with every human being but you let, you let certain people in and other people you don't because they're toxic and they're destructive and you don't want any harm done to you anymore. But learning how to pick those safe people and healthy relationships and be connected so that I can learn how to not use people but connect with people. And that is a commitment that I've made is that I always choose, I choose to walk a life of connection and, um, yeah, we go on the, you go on the gym and, and, you know, sometimes, um, women are almost wearing nothing and you can choose to objectify and look at that and fantasize and all that, or you can choose to move past that and see that there's a human being standing there and let go of the whole objectification thing and see the, pursue the person. It happens in everyday life. Everything that we do is either based on using or, or connecting and be a person who pursues connection be a person who chooses to love people care about people rather than use people um and that's been my journey now this is it how do i use the remaining part of my life to connect to heal to empower to help people change yeah so right. thank you for the time i've had and with sure. with Good. Enjoyed it. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor. If you like the video, share it. Uh, share it to somebody that uh, will find this interesting and somebody that maybe you think needs it. Uh, also, if you liked it, hit the subscribe button. If you haven't already, hit the bell so you get notified of videos like this. And leave me a comment. We'll leave any links that uh, Gene has in the description box. So you can get in touch with him if you need to or get in touch with the uh, programs that he supports. And I really appreciate you guys watching. Thank you very much. See ya.